I feel very grateful to have the opportunity to give a talk this evening. I'm experiencing the now I've got to give a Dharma talk feeling, <laughs> which is quite an interesting one. <laughs> I'm quite grateful to Ajahn Amaru for talking about anxiety last night because it's um, it's been lovely to I had this sort of knot of anxiety this afternoon about giving a talk in exactly where he said in the solar plexus. And um, I was remembering what he said about, well, it's it's not really even as bad as a headache, certainly not as bad as toothache. And actually that's very true. I'm also glad to have an opportunity to express my appreciation for these teachings we've been hearing. Because I don't know about you, but every evening and also during the day, they're there have been many little gems for me that have, have gone right in and that I've been able to use in my practice during this retreat. And I feel very grateful for that and for all Ajahn Amaru's generosity in teaching. We're almost halfway, I think we are halfway through the retreat now. Now I'm glad that he's having a break at this point. One of the first things that Ajahn Amaru was telling us, um, suggesting to us as some advice was um, the sense of um, a loving kindness around our practice. Um, I found that really helpful. That was somewhere in the first day or two, I remember. And um, also that questioning, well, that, that gentle inquiry, how are we, how am I? At the beginning of each sitting, I've been doing that. And it's lovely, actually, to, to take that time to kind of, in a way, welcome myself. And I've also noticed that, along with that, I've, I've been um, bringing to mind the, the other three Brahma-viharas um, and using them during the meditation, during the walking, to to ease and to to kind of it's a kind of salve or a kind of um, softening of the practice. There's plenty of scope for compassion because I don't know about you, but sitting all these days, there's aches and pains and on the physical level, and then on the emotional and mental levels, there's all sorts of more difficult experiences coming and going. And I found it really helpful to, to have a sense of almost there's a part of the mind that's, that's um, in a very loving way, in a very motherly way, sympath sympathetic, resonating with. that isn't actually the suffering, but is bigger than that and uh, able to, to, to give it space and to, to uh, to, to, in a way, um, soften and in a way sympathize. We can sympathize with ourselves and our suffering. We can um, give ourselves uh, that kind of care. Because sometimes there can be a lot of hardness around pain, I've noticed, and even a bit of self-judgment there. And um, this can only pile on the suffering. So this is something that really alleviates and, and softens the hard edges. And there have been moments, quite a few moments, the last few days when I've, I've brought to mind mudita, gladness. And um, it's so helpful when there's a dullness or when there's a feeling of um, maybe some aversion, um, recollecting, actually this is a really fortunate time 
this is really uh, an amazing opportunity. I'm rejoicing in that. It's rare enough to have the human birth, but to actually then come in contact with the teachings, incredibly rare. And to then actually feel the intention to follow the teachings, so rare. And to actually have the opportunity to do that, is something really, really worth celebrating. And it's, it's a nice recollection from time to time to bring that to mind. It, I find it lifts me and um, it's, it's a sense of encouragement. And also a lightness and a joyfulness can come in. And I've been reflecting on equanimity as well, Upeka. Um, for me, it, it's, it's translated these last few days into a it's a, it's a sense of not arguing with reality, you know, um, the subtle aversion, the subtle movement towards experience, identification with experience can creep in from time to time. And it's, it's, um, it's for me, it's been that noting that quality or bringing to mind that quality that's not, that's not, um, buying into experience, but is actually standing back, fully aware, very sensitive to it, to what's what's manifesting, but not actually embroiled in it, not tangled up in it. This calmness and this um, evenness, stability of mind. And this is not to create more layers, you know, on top of experience. I'm not suggesting um, it's good to throw in more material when our work is really to to disburden ourselves of experience or to let go or to let be. But sometimes I, I've noticed these divine states can, can really, it's like a, a sort of radiance which can illuminate the heart and uh, Encourage me to keep going, basically. So I'm very grateful for that advice, that that setting up a, a loving and kind kind of background in the mind, which can then receive, um, can can uh, enable the the dukkha to to rise and pass. I thought I might talk a little bit about um, the hindrances this evening because um, I experience them and um, I find it quite helpful to have a, um, it's a bit like having a, uh, one of those virus checks in a computer, um, a sort of background um, watchfulness, if you like, a kind of... Um, a vigilance around these hindrances that can creep in um, to catch them, <laughs> catch them as early as possible. Um, because I've noticed that with the hindrances, just to simply be aware of them is the work. You know, they then, once the, the light is on them, they seem to sort of, sort of flee away. Um, Awareness seems to enable them to to live their little life, but then to pass away quite swiftly. I think of them in two pairs, two pairs and a tail. Um, the first two being um, sense desire and aversion. And they're really like two sides of the same coin in a way. And again, it's that contending with reality. It's any hint of a movement towards a holding on to our experience. A sense of wanting, actually kind of really quite liking what's happening and wanting it to continue if possible, for as long as possible sometimes. Anything that's, that's 
got that quality of stickiness or clinging onto, holding onto. The Buddha in Anguttara Nikaya, he gave some beautiful similes for the, the hindrances. And um, the simile for sense desire, if you imagine a um, bowl of water, clear water, that you could look into and see your reflection very clearly. And the hindrance of sensual desire is like a dye that's been poured into the water. So it becomes obscure and it's coloured. It feels like a very, very wonderful simile to me because sense desire has that quality for me of um, it, it colours things. It's like a, it's a certain slant on things. And it can be very subtle. A tinge of sort of rose-tinted effect. The simile for um, aversion is the bowl of water with some heat applied underneath it. So it starts to warm up and starts to bubble and boil. And again, the the reflection, the clarity is, is thrown around. It's, it's no longer there. And aversion for me can be very subtle. It can be just a, a slight shrinking away from. It can be very, very obvious as well pain that's just you know there are there's a there's a part of the mind that's okay i i'm completely i can be with this and uh, you know, i know how to practice with this but there can still be parts of the the heart that are really resisting and um sometimes it's not easy to notice So I like to check from time to time just to see if there's any aversion lurking there when there's uncomfortable feeling in the mind or in the body. The Buddha gave um, antidotes to these hindrances. And um, for this, this first pair, the antidote for sensual delight or desire is um, contemplation of foulness. So, if there's, say, a longing for some particular food, because I'm hungry, and it's there in the mind, and we're starting to fantasize about what we might like to eat, um, just to think about what happens, you know, maybe couple of hours after you've eaten or you know 12 hours later where is that where is the lovely chocolate cake or whatever it is that I'm fantasizing about so something that will just move the mind away from that or with uh, lust you know desire for, for others bodies to think about how will it be when that person's 97 or actually has passed away in there and is in their grave. And actually these reflections can seem a bit morbid and um, negative, but it, but it can be a very quick and easy way to move away from desire. It's, it's a very useful tool, which I'm sure many of you have utilised on occasion. The second pair of hindrances, um, again, kind of back-to-back with each other. They're um, Tina Mida, Sloth and Torpa, and um, Udacha Kukucha, which is just what it sounds like, restlessness, and also remorse. And... Um, Again, they can be very overt, but they can also, I find, can be very subtle. And um, even sometimes it's hard to know 
if they're present, they can be present without an awareness of their playing out. I notice that especially with um, Sloth and Torpor. When the mind becomes very dull, but also very focused inward, the, the, it's almost like tunnel vision. And um, I've had the experience quite a few times of, of feeling like I'm meditating perfectly well and sitting up and very aware. Um, and then afterwards, I can be told, well, actually, no, you're, 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 you were nodding. Your head was really touching the ground. Or you, you might even come to, as Jenna-Marie mentioned the other day, you might have some drooling going on. Or you, you might be told you were snoring or... And it's quite an unpleasant thing to <laughs> to be so out of it that you don't you're not even aware that you've been overcome by this this particular hindrance. So in a way, I well, I'm a bit prone to this one. So every now and then, I'll actually check, and it's easy enough just to open the eyes and see what you're looking at <laughs> if it's if it's down at the <laughs> down at the ground. Oh, there's a hint that maybe uh, some energy needs to be <laughs> brought into play. And with restlessness, um, it can also be quite subtle. I mean, it can be a physical you know, inability to sit still. And that's very obvious and um, something that one can then work with. But it can also be a, a tendency to distract, a tendency to not quite focus on the object of meditation, whatever it is. Now the Buddha gave these similes for these two hindrances. For sloth and torpor, he compared it to um, the bowl of water with uh, water plants and uh, algae in it. A sense of neglect and um, that, that there are many other things that can come into, that can grow into this space without us noticing, without clearing them away. Again, obscuring the reflective, the clarity. And for uh, Udacha Kukucha, for... for um, restlessness and remorse the similes of a, a, the water being affected by strong winds around it so that the surface becomes choppy and rough and uh, you look into it to try and see the reflection it's impossible to see anything the remedy for sloth and torpor is um, energy to arouse energy, and um, I find this often it's a physical, it's a physical issue more than anything, although the mind can also become very dull, as I described, it can um, narrow down, but um, a simple way to arouse energy, of course, is to open the eyes and to, and then to, one can note how sleepy and drowsy one might be. And I find it really interesting that, you know, I can be feeling so tired and so much that I need, I really want to go to sleep would just be so delicious and then get up at the end of the meditation and fully alert again. It's not necessarily that we're tired, not often the case. Although good to, to check, good to know, notice if actually one simply needs more sleep. But oftentimes I find this hindrance can come on when I've rested well and yet the sense the sense of weariness can be very powerful. And to get up sometimes is, is necessary. Walking meditation is wonderful and I think the fact we alternate walking and sitting is really helpful um, so that we're not getting into prolonged states of sloth and torpor. If we're prone to that, walking is wonderful. It arouses energy and when you come back and sit... I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I find I'm energised by that. The remedy for um, agitation 
restlessness and remorse is um, to to bring up to um, enable tranquility and calm and I find the way to do that myself is to have a very focused object of meditation so the Buddha um, often talked about anapanasati as a remedy for restlessness so that that one can practice in many different ways but as a, a counterbalance to restlessness I find it very helpful to focus the energy really onto a very narrow um, point it can be anywhere but some something any and it doesn't have to be the breath but any physical place point to actually bring the bring the attention inwards onto that focusing developing also concentration this is a this has a calming effect as I'm sure you've noticed and it can really help to um, move through the hindrance of restlessness And the tale of the, the creature, the hindrances, um, is doubt, which is a, a mental issue, um, thinking, thinking, and analysing, for me, analysing or mm, debating with myself uh, whether to practice this way or that way, or oh, it can be anything really. But that kind of circularity of thinking, so getting onto a roll, and um, it's a it's a great distraction from um, the practice. And again, it can be sometimes quite subtle. Um, and also quite relentless. And the great remedy for this is to come out of the thinking, to drop the thoughts, just like a drop of water hitting a hot plate, just let them dissolve. And mindfulness is, of course, the key to be alert to the, the thinking process and not follow the trains of thought, which can be very enticing sometimes, to be willing to let them go. The Buddha compared, gave the simile of doubt um, as the the bowl of water that's um, muddy, it's all opaque, obscured with mud, and placed in a dark room. So a sense of obscurity, losing clarity um, out of it is there for me in that image. Ajahn Amaro's talk quite a bit about um, non-self, anatta, and I've also found it really helpful to apply um, that kind of lens, looking through the lens of anatta at the hindrances, not to mention the rest of experience. But it seems to um, give a greater clarity, I've noticed, and a, a sense of um, more spaciousness around these experiences, which has been really helpful. Anicca, anatta, dukkha, these three characteristics of reality, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self, I, uh, just as the Brahma-viharas are a helpful backdrop to the practice, I find these three, it is like looking through a particular filter as experience and so helpful to keep bringing them to mind.
after it's been six days now, Ajahn Amaro was mentioning that a number of people have commented that actually the mind is beginning to really settle down and a sense of freedom from the hindrances and uh, clarity and peacefulness starting to manifest. Which is wonderful. And to be made much of, I um, feel that, uh, you know, the Buddha talked about the seven factors of enlightenment, and they, um, particularly when the hindrances start to fall away, they begin to reveal themselves. And I feel it, it's really helpful to note these also, these states, as they arise and really over years of meditation watching them uh, slowly grow because they are the, the, the fruits of this meditation practice and as I'm sure you know and I feel myself it's like every every moment really spent mindfully but particularly you know retreat or a, a, a time of that's devoted to practice in this way. Um, there's a sense of it's 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 a path of joy. It's it's a path of happiness, and it's good to really note that, really make much of that, because actually, um, the reason it is a path of happiness and joy is because we're facing our defilements, we're facing suffering and facing it head on and uh, when everything in us is encouraging us to turn away and ignore and distract ourselves from suffering, it takes quite a, um, a lot of courage and a, a nobility really to, to, to be willing to face suffering. And the Buddha um, emphasized Dukkha in his teaching, as you know, um, because that is uh, it's practical and it's something that everyone can relate to. The fact that we all suffer physically at some point in our lives, most likely. We all age and we all have to face death. It's, it's that great equalizer. It's, it's the common thread for all of us and... I know the story, you probably know it, but it comes to mind the story of when after the Buddha was enlightened and he was traveling, you know, to find his five companions in Sarnath to teach them um, what he discovered. And um, and he met, uh, I can't remember his name, but he met a, a wanderer, uh, a religious, on the road and the Buddha's countenance was so bright and he was so um, clearly um, a very um, happy and uh, radiant being in his rag robes. And um, so the wanderer asked him, what, what, tell me who your teacher is. What, what can you tell me about your practice? You're obviously... Um, reaping great benefits, please, you know, share with me. And the Buddha, you know, said, oh, well, I'm, I am fully enlightened. I have no teacher. I have come to this realization by myself. Um, I am free from greed, hatred, and delusion. And uh, the other, the wanderer, simply kind of shrugged and <laughs> wagged his head and walked off. So something about that approach <laughs> didn't work. It was very off-putting. And it's really interesting because, you know, that was the, the clear and simple truth, actually. <laughs> Clearer than, in a way, more straightforward than the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. But, but obviously, it doesn't quite... Um, 
lead one in. It doesn't encourage investigation. Whereas the Four Noble Truths um, certainly does. So to come back to the factors of enlightenment, I want to just mention them. Um, something to 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 be aware of, to note, and to um, make, but um, kind of bring to the foreground. I think of them in uh, there's like there's a head which is sati. Sati is the head. The, the crucial uh, quality, mindfulness, which also means remembrance, remembering. And isn't it just the, the core of our practice? Being present, being aware, being awake to this moment. And then there are three groups of Two groups of three. In the first group, investigation of Dharma. That wonderful quality of the Dharma which is leading us inward. It's inviting us to come and see. <coughs> and in a way I find when there's a when there's a, a turning of the attention towards the teachings, there is that quality that it's almost effortless. Once you are engaged in the practice, it really does. It, it really becomes ever more fascinating. There's always more to discover. And uh, it's a discovery of that which was not known, but somehow... Um, like the Buddha described the the path as a like a path through a wilderness that can can become overgrown and become hidden through uh, lack of attention but actually um, if one pays attention and goes and clears the space there's the path and it's that sense that actually it was always there it was always there we've always known it but we somehow forgot very interesting. So investigation of Dharma, that, that wonderful um, journey inward. Energy is the third uh, factor of enlightenment. Wirya. Making effort applying ourselves and um, it needs to have discernment with it um, to to focus the energy to direct it to bring up that which is uh, worth promoting worth um, practicing and to use energy also to let go of the unwholesome to let go of the hindrances, for instance. And the third of this uh, group, this, this set of three, is rapture, piti, which I notice can be experienced when there's a cessation um, it's almost like a sense of relief sometimes. A sense of uh, it's like a like a door opening, new vistas. When there's something, hindrances can be like fog or clouds or this obs obscuration of the water. When there's a when there's a clearing, and one can see um, through, one one has insight. And these moments can be many and um, always unexpected. And that for me, that is the sense of pity, 
when the mind is focused, when there's um, nothing in the way. Stillness. But it has a quality of also blissfulness. A kind of excite, excitedness. Piti. These three have an energy and when the um, hindrance of sloth and torpor is seen through or falls away, these are the qualities that really come to the fore. And the um, other group of three Tranquility, Pasadi, Concentration, Samadhi, and Upeka, Equanimity, all have the, the quality of calm and peacefulness. When the hindrance of restlessness and um, remorse is moved through, it falls away, it is reduced, it's dissolved, then these qualities start to manifest. And equanimity, Upeka, is the is the last factor of enlightenment and it's also the most significant. I think of Upeka as um, a very wakeful state, a very sensitive, very finely tuned state. It's a, it's a paradox because there's that and then there's the calm, the calm. So it's not a state of um, being switched off or being indifferent, but very attentive. Um, almost that the, 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 the quality of calm that develops with practice enables that sensitivity the two go together the more I experience equanimity the more I can see reality clearly and be with experience because there isn't that need to shy away from it. Above all, I've been um, contemplating anatta, non-self, and in relation to the five khandhas, um, just noticing really the... Um, it's not so difficult to feel, to, to be conscious, to... Um, let go of the sense of identification with the body um, isn't it when, when we're meditating somehow um, that seems very apparent I'm not this body um, and with sensation with feeling also it seems very um it's, it's, it's not so difficult to disidentify with feeling. It's something, there's a consciousness that there are only pleasant, unpleasant or neutral feelings and that's the same for all of us and they arise due to causes and conditions and there is no um, sense of meanness or minus around them or rather there is but it's it's not so difficult to notice that and to begin to see through that with perception with the the seen the heard the smelt the tasted the touched the thought um, it gets a little bit more challenging and I've been I find it endlessly fascinating to notice 
the um, sense of uh, identification with these experiences. I'm having these experiences. And um, it's wonderful to, to have the concept of an utter in mind and to keep noticing, just to keep noticing, yes, uh, there is that conditioning, there is that way of seeing things, but it's not actually the case. It's not actually reality. It's a work in process for me. And equally with Sankara, with the um, thoughts, ideas, concepts, memories that come up, um, they can be very potent. There can be a strong sense of self around that. Memories of childhood or things that have happened. Um, intellectually, it's very easy to, to, I find, to... to to know, yes, of course, that's not um, who and what I am. But it, it takes a certain leap. There's a, there's a, again, the reminder is very necessary and very helpful. Oh, okay, this is, this is not something to attach to. This isn't something to identify with. When it comes to consciousness, I think this is the great challenge. The basic consciousness, the sense of beingness, the sense of... Uh, is, is the backdrop to all experience and to, to, to um, work with the understanding, the teaching that this consciousness is not, is not mine, it's not myself. I find this very interesting and I understand it to be liberating, but I'm not liberated from it. But it's um, a conundrum that the mind is all constantly um, working around, working with, teasing way at. A very good friend gave me a book called The Ego Tunnel recently, and I found out that there are many scientists who are actually um, exploring this field of consciousness, which I had no idea, and uh, making some really quite wonderful discoveries, but not new ones. You know, it's interesting. It's like what they're discovering is actually what the Buddha taught about consciousness. But it's wonderful to, to take in the fact that... Um, all this research, all this work, academic work is going on in scientific circles and um, they're coming to, you know, it's a sense of religious awe and uh, the mystery of it all. Um, but the ego tunnel is just as it, you could imagine that what they're discovering is that, of course, um, our, our minds are so clever at constructing um, what seems to be real, our world. And our world is nothing but a tunnel in the greater reality. It's very limited indeed. So the perception, the sense doors, the information that we receive um, through the sense doors is our world. And it's, it's a sort of sliver, of course it's a sliver of, of reality, but it doesn't seem that way, to me at least, it seems like, well actually this is it. Um, and it's quite fascinating to, to, I find it very helpful for right view to read this, this work that's being done and these, these realizations that they're having. And the sense of, um, I-ness, the sense of self, is very much part of um, the exploration and also the sense of here and now. So that our uh, present moment is also a construct. It's something that the mind puts together for our convenience in a way so that we have a kind of a, an anchor, if you like, in this sort of ocean of, of 
reality, something that sort of tethers us to a particular spot. And the sense of self is pure fantasy, but it's it's the mind um, brilliantly stitches it together in order for us to be able to function, if you like. And um, to to it, this is, I know, it's on an intellectual level, but to actually begin to unpick these um, what seems like a very seamless construction to to begin to dismantle these very very powerful um, seeming realities it's quite it's quite a This um, aspect of anatta in relation to vinyana, in relation to consciousness, feels very key to me. And as Ajahn Amaru said last night, that the fact that we we can't actually place the mind anywhere in terms of space or in terms of time, it's actually it's actually outside of that. It's actually beyond that. Um, it's something which I can't. I can't experience, but I'm very open to and very interested in the the um, the movement, the the letting go of that which prevents me from seeing that, prevents me from experiencing that. And I'm conscious that the the last fetter, the tenth fetter, um, which is the the last uh, delusion to go before one is fully liberated, is the conceit, the um, belief that I am. And um, it's so fundamental to our, our entire existence as human beings. All of our experience, all our sense of past and present and future and who and what we are. Um, and it can be very subtle It can be very refined. And in the end it's a it's um it's a sense of this and that, a sense of this one here and other over there, inside and outside, duality, um, anything that separates reality. Ajahn Buddhadasa talked about the, um, the, the sort of um, the subtlest concepts of reality as sunyata, emptiness, and tatata, thusness. And these are, you know, in the suttas, the Buddha talks about these as great realizations, great insights, to have a to, to, to realize emptiness, to know that all, all that is, all dhammas are unreal, ultimately, is a, is a tremendous liberation and freedom, but it's not the ultimate freedom. And in the same way, tatata, thusness, it's like the aspect of um, realization that is um, imminence and sunyata is the aspect that is transcendence and in both of these there's a there's still a very subtle um, in the case of sunyata a, a, a movement away or a um, a negation or a there's a, a, a duality there and in tatata, a very subtle um, movement towards, 
an affirmation, if you like, of reality, an affirmation of some substance. Um, with sunyata, it's a it's a negation. It's a, a realization of no substance. And finally, a tamyata is the term that um, Jambuddhadasa brought out of the teachings to describe um, a, not, ta, that, maya, created, created thing or imagined thing, ta, coming into being. Atamyata is where the, that duality is resolved. And there's no separation and no more. I am is the end of conceit. Ajahn Buddhadasa call these the eyes of Dharma. And I I don't know about you, but I, I find myself um it's like a, an encouragement for me towards right view. So a, a sense of mm, if the mind's quite active and it likes food, it likes nourishment then I want to give it the best kind of nourishment. And um, these teachings, you know, they're such sustenance for us and um, guidance for us. The Buddha was a wonderful maker of lists, but I actually find these groups of concepts to be very helpful. And... uh, worth bringing to mind again and again. They can seem quite dry on paper, in black and white, but actually, um, having quite an active mind, I, I like to to take in these lists and actually contemplate them. It's a bit like dropping a stone into a, uh, a pond. Just, just drop in, uh, say, one of the factors of enlightenment, that concept, and just let it, sink down and let the ripples kind of radiate out and see what it has to show to teach me. So I hope I haven't sort of bored you with these dry lists and that there might be some um, concept or some uh, little aspect of what I've said that may be of use to one or two of you. Thank you very much for your patient listening. I think I'll finish.